pick up a copy of the sermon notes. If you happen to be here for the first time, uh, we've been in a, a sermon series entitled Blessed Are the Persecuted. And we've been just basically looking uh, at various uh, Old Testament Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith in God uh, to learn and not only uh, how God uses persecution in the life of the believers for their good, for their spiritual benefit, but also, of course, how we're to respond to persecution in a uh, godly, Christ-like manner. And, re- and let me remind you, uh, although we are focusing on persecution for our faith, a hostility toward the faith, every principle that we're looking at also has direct application to any adversity that you would encounter in life, any test, any trial, uh, any problem, any, any suffering. And uh, so far, we've looked at uh, Joseph, we've looked at uh, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, and two weeks ago, uh, we began to look at Nehemiah. And we're going to finish that up uh, today. Of course, I missed last Sunday, appreciated uh, Jonathan uh, filling in uh, for me. And I just want to say, I have the greatest respect for Jonathan and uh, his love for God's Word, his ability to teach God's Word, and uh, he just constantly brings joy to my heart. And uh, I'm so thankful that, uh, that we have him. So if you were not here two weeks ago, you're going to have to go to the church website to get the first part of the message that you see on the uh, first half of your notes. What we did two weeks ago, which I thought was uh, very meaningful, at least it was for me, it was very instructive. Uh, we basically looked at the opposition that Nehemiah and the children of uh, Israel encountered Uh, after they had returned to the land after the Babylonian captivity, and uh, they set about to rebuild the walls that had been uh, destroyed. And we uh, saw that the moment they began to rebuild the walls, enemies came up from every side. Uh, They were literally surrounded by enemies who hated them and uh, wanted to do nothing but to destroy them and to stop the work. And so we uh, basically... Uh, looked at eight ways uh, that they came under attack, eight weapons that the enemy used to, to come against them. But we not only looked at those eight weapons, what was even more important, we looked at Nehemiah's response. And it was beautiful to see his response. And basically what you saw was a man of prayer and also a man that just refused to remove, to, to, uh, get distracted from the work that God had called him to do. Uh, those were probably, probably three primary lessons that we saw was the uh, power of prayer, uh, the need to stand firm, not to be diverted, not to be distracted when God gives you a task, and then, of course, the importance of unity among God's people to be able to complete the task. And so what we would like to do today as we finish up this lesson on Nehemiah, if you go to the back side of your notes, is to look at lessons to live by today in overcoming opposition to complete God's work. And I want us to draw uh, basically five applications from two weeks ago that we can apply to our lives today and look at the first truth. Accept the fact, accept the fact that opposition against God's work will be inevitable, innumerable, and inescapable, but when it comes, rejoice. That is the message from the beginning of the Scripture to the end of Scripture, that when believers face opposition, 
When hostility comes against you, don't crumble, don't get depressed. No, instead rejoice. Why? Because opposition comes against success, not failure. The brighter God's people shine for Christ, the more visible a target we make for the enemy. That's just a reality. In other words, we've been given a mission. We've been given a mission to what? To live and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Christ's character to be formed in us, to be displayed through us, and then as we walk in his character, to take the gospel, the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That I mentioned earlier in my prayer, that is the only answer to the ills of this world. And we are to share that message with boldness to a lost world. And as we do that, and as God uses us to advance his cause, to advance the gospel, the brighter our light shines, the more visible a target we make. But God says, rejoice when it comes. Rejoice. Don't crumble. Don't get discouraged. Don't become faint-hearted. Uh, and I hope you have your Bibles because in this message, we're going to just look at a number of different scriptures as cross-references. Uh, turn first to Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this, that when persecution comes, when hostility comes, rejoice. Matter of fact, the word that he uses in this passage literally means throw a party. That's amazing. In other words, well, let's just read it. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 11 and 12. This is Jesus' teaching. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you. Now, of course, remember, this is all in the context. This is coming because what? You're being a bright light for Jesus. In other words, you're not earning those insults. You're not worried, you know, this is coming at you because of Jesus. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. Falsely, notice falsely, on account of me. Rejoice. Again, celebrate, throw a party, and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why are we to rejoice? Because no matter what the enemy does to us, they can never take Jesus from us. They can never take our heavenly reward. Think of those folks in Sutherland Springs. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he said, you don't need to fear anyone who can kill the body, but not the soul. The one you need to fear is the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. What's Jesus saying? A believer need not fear death. For us, what? Instant death is what? Instant glorification in heaven. I mean, if the very worst thing the enemy can do to me is to take my life, he's just ushering me into my eternal inheritance. Amen? Amen. Uh, so Jesus said, rejoice. Look, the, uh, look at 1 Peter. Peter emphasized this same truth over and over again. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, matter of fact, a few years ago we uh, uh, did an expositional study through the entire book, every verse. And uh, this is a book that is being addressed to a persecuted people. And uh, the, uh, that's the main theme of the book. And uh, look at uh, chapter 1. We'll look at 2. We could look at many, but we'll look at 2. Look at uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 6. He says, in this you greatly, what's the next word? Rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. 
Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Stop right there. When he says, in this you greatly rejoice, what is the this he is referring to? Go to the verses right before. Notice he talks about verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. In other words, we have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he says, this is what you rejoice in, your heavenly reward, this tremendous inheritance that God has for you, even though right now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by these trials, by these persecutions, by these hostilities, that the proof of your faith, verse 7, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. So we rejoice when hostility comes. When we rejoice because we know that that is only as we respond in a godly manner, it only builds up for us greater heavenly treasure. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at, uh, let's begin reading verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fire or deal among you. Why are you shocked that you're being persecuted? Why are you shocked? That the, that the uh, enemy's coming after you. Uh, he said, which comes upon you for your testing. As though some strange thing were happening to you. But look at verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on what? Rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled, verse 14, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Or you could say you are most happy. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Amen. You know, a great example of this is, uh, you don't have to turn there. Let me get there. A uh, great example of this rejoicing and difficulty is uh, the uh, Hebrew believers. And uh, Hebrews chapter 10, let me just read these verses. Uh, he says, but remember now, this is verses, I'll read verses 32 um, through uh, 36. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that's a reference to their conversion. When after you were converted, he says, uh, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. You were made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were, who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, talking about believers who were put into prison for their faith. This was a very, very difficult time in their lives. And, and this is the phrase I want you to see. And you accepted, you accepted joyfully rejoicing. They threw a party. When? When they seized your property and your possessions. Why did they rejoice? Don't miss this. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. That heavenly inheritance. That heavenly reward. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 
So accept the fact that opposition is going to come against God's work. But when it comes, rejoice, knowing that opposition doesn't come against failure, it comes against success, and realize that the brighter your light shines, the more visible a target you make for the enemy, but don't let that scare you. We have the power to put the enemy on the run through the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the second takeaway from two weeks ago. When opposition comes, and this is one of the greatest lessons we learned from Nehemiah, when opposition comes, don't get defensive, but take the offensive through prayer. Talk more to God than to your critics. If you notice, Nehemiah didn't take a lot of time trying to answer his critics. He just turned to God, said, God, look at what these guys are saying about you. Look at what they're saying about us. Look at how they're just trying to destroy this work. So, Lord, I'm going to trust you to take care of these guys, and I'm going to stay to the work. What you need to do, and this is a beautiful lesson for us, you need to follow Nehemiah's pattern of prayer found in Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you would turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, this is the first prayer that's found in the book. There are 12 prayers that Nehemiah prays in this book that shows the importance of prayer and overcoming opposition. And this is the first one. And in this prayer, you see a beautiful pattern. You, you discover how to pray when you hit a time of suffering or adversity or when you encounter a problem or a challenge or when you face persecution or opposition. Uh, let's begin at verse uh, 3. Let's begin at verse 3. And they said to me, now remember, just to give you a little background in case you weren't here two weeks ago, before Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, what was his position? Who remembers? He was the cupbearer of, uh, of the king, of the Gentile king uh, that was on the throne. And when he heard of the distressing uh, conditions of the city of Jerusalem and the walls were torn down, God just put a burden on his heart. Nehemiah, you're my man. And I want you to go back there and I want you to see those walls rebuilt, the uh, city uh, revived and also to bring spiritual renewal and revival to the people. And so he knew he was going to have to go to the king to ask permission to go. And, he, and you remember, he not only asked the king to go, but he actually is bold enough to ask the king for a lot of provisions, resources to be able to complete the work. And the king actually gives him enough timber to, uh, to uh, rebuild all of the gates uh, related to the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But look at verse 3. And they said to me, this is when he learned about the problem. The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity, they are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, 
on behalf of the sons of Israel thy servants, and confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against thee. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee, and have not kept commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Verse 8, remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. And that's what happened. They were unfaithful. Babylonians came from the north, and they were led away into captivity. But now, Nehemiah says, verse 9, But you also promise, but if you return to me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Referring to the king, that he would be granted permission to leave. Now look there in your notes. And notice what we discover in this prayer. First, you hit a time of difficulty. You hit a time of suffering, persecution, whatever it may be. This is the first thing you need to do. Praise God for His greatness. Praise God for His greatness. How did Nehemiah open the prayer? Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Now, why? Why, when you're hitting a time of challenge or difficulty or hostility, why do you begin with praise? Why? Nobody? Right. And, and it takes your focus, what? Off what you see as this enormous problem or challenge or difficulty, and it puts it on what? The great and awesome God that we have. In other words, it takes your, your eyes off the size of the problem and puts on the size of God. And how do you increase your faith? Not by grunting and groaning for more faith, but by looking what? To the faithful one who will never let you down. So you begin with praising God for his faithfulness. Where do you go from there? You remind God of his promises. That's the next point. Remind God of his promises. What did Nehemiah pray? He said he reminded God, you're the one who preserves the covenant. He's referring to the promises that God had given his people. You're the one that preserves the covenant. You're upon your loving kindness for those who love you and keep your commandments. And then he says, remember the word which thou didst command to thy servant. And he's reminding him of the promise that although you scatter the people, if we return to you, you'll bring us back to the land and you'll bring blessing upon us. Uh, I've said many times from this pulpit, and I'll say it again, faith is simply weighing the impossibility of your circumstance over against the impossibility of God breaking His Word and then you choosing to believe God who is able. That's faith. That's faith. As you walk through life as a believer, you are going to encounter a number of opportunities that God brilliantly disguises as impossible situations to teach you to put your trust in Him and so that when the smoke clears and it's all done, all the glory goes to him. There's no other explanation than God did it. And let me also add before I move on, this is sort of a little bit of a sobering thought. Why should God 
listen to me. If I have not been listening to him and doing what he's already told me to do. You know, a lot of times one of the big problems in our prayer life is that we hit a time of crisis and we begin to cry out to God and we begin to find these promises and cling to them. And God's just sort of, I'm just waiting for you to do what I already told you to do. Look at the next thing. Repent of all sin. Repent of all sin. You saw that emphasized very heavily in this prayer. Uh, where he, he acknowledged his sin, his father's sin, the children of Israel's sin. He acknowledged that they had uh, acted corruptly and not kept the commandments, the statutes, the ordinances. Simply put, if sin goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. It's just that simple. If prayer goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. And we need not be afraid to be totally honest with God about our failures because as, as we sang earlier and as Andy shared with us, the blood of Jesus has covered all that. We find mercy. We can always find a new beginning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next point. Surrender your human inability as an opportunity for God to demonstrate His invincibility. Surrender your, what you see as your human inability, your inadequacy. Your weakness as an opportunity for God to demonstrate His invincibility. You know, I hope you haven't missed it. You know, one of the things I told you when we began this series is look for the common denominators in these individuals' lives. And one of the things that we've clearly seen in these first five is that when God begins to work with one of His children, brokenness is going to be involved. I mean, he's going to allow difficulty to come to bring us to the end of ourselves. To kick out, we talked about with David, all those crutches that we tend to lean on that become substitutes for God so that we learn to lean on him alone. In other words, every one of these characters, God got them so low that they had no place to look up. And in every one of their lives, he brought them to the place where exalting God, exalting Christ became more important than what? Escaping their difficulty where they really became God-centered, Christ-centered. And they, and they got to the place, it's one of the most difficult places to get in the Christian life, but God wants to bring me there, He wants to take you there. Every single believer. He wants to teach us contentment. And what I mean by contentment is where you get to the place where you can, in authenticity, leave the outcomes to God. Leave the outcomes to God. Where... I know the one who loves me most knows what is best for me. So I don't have to get all caught up on outcomes because God is the all-wise, the all-knowing God. I can keep my focus on Him, loving Him, exalting Him, using the backdrop of my difficulty, my circumstances, an opportunity to demonstrate Him. And that makes all the difference in the world. Turn very, very quickly to uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Here's a good example in, uh, in Paul's life. And uh, I won't spend long here because uh, one of the characters we're going to look at is Paul, and we probably will come back to this. But, but look at verse 7. You're very familiar with this passage, but let me show you something. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from uh, 
exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me to keep me from exalting myself. By the way, of course, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh uh, was. Uh, Paul doesn't identify it. Uh, It's always been my conviction that it was not a physical affliction. I personally believe he's referring to persecution. I personally believe this is probably a Judaizer that was assigned to Paul. If you're familiar with Paul's ministry, the Judaizers followed Paul everywhere he went. And everywhere he went, they had one goal, to stir up trouble, conflict, persecution, and have Paul tarred and feathered and run out of town and, if, and killed if, if possible. And I think that's what that, that, that was. And then notice Paul's response. He says, uh, concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that I might, it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is what? Perfected. Where? In weakness. And then notice Paul, now his attitude totally changes. You know, he's begging God for a particular outcome. God, this is painful. It hurts. Take it away. Oh, God, God says, no, Paul, my grace will be sufficient. My power is going to be perfecting your weakness. And when Paul heard that, his, to- his attitude totally changes. Then he says, what? Most gladly, that thought of rejoicing again. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And verse 10 is another reason why I believe this, mess- this thorn in the flesh uh, was persecution from a Judaizer. Therefore, I am well content, 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 with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And my simple point is what God did in Joseph's life, David's life, Jeremiah, Daniel, Nehemiah's life, what he did in Paul's life, he's committed to do in your life. And there will be thorns, and they will hurt, they will be painful. And if you would just surrender, give God the freedom to arrange your life in the way that He deems best, where you're not so focused on an outcome, where you can begin to focus on God. And when that happens, I guarantee you what you're going to hear. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is going to be perfected in your weakness. I know this hurts, but ultimately it's going to be for your spiritual benefit. And for my glory. And then look at the last thing. It's obvious I'm not going to finish this message today. Be specific in prayer to get specific answers. Be specific in prayer to get specific answers. That's one of the things we learned about Nehemiah. He's very specific in his prayers. And we need to be very specific in our prayers. Uh, I'll give you one thing I've learned in my lesson. that has been one of the most valuable lessons in my prayer life. Uh, uh, and you may need to think on this a little bit. I don't know if you've ever thought from this. Prayer is a means to an end. The end is the answer to prayer. But that end, the purpose is not for my gratification, it's for what? God's glorification. It's, uh, my, my, the purpose of me praying is to find the grace to live for Christ in all circumstances, to love like Christ in all relationships. To look to Him for direction and guidance in all of life's decisions. 
and, and, and to lean on Him and all the challenges of, of life. That's the ultimate purpose of prayer. And what I've noticed is I, when I pray, I expect an answer. And I realize if I don't get that answer, there's only several possibilities. There's either something wrong with my life. We're going back to that principle of sin goes unchecked, prayer goes unanswered. So that's one possibility. I need to examine my life to make sure there's no unconfessed sin. There could be something wrong with my prayer. God's using this to teach me how to pray better. Uh, what it means to release outcomes and to look to Him. Uh, knowing that He already has determined uh, how He's going to work in this situation. And it's just for me uh, to, to follow Him in that situation. Or God could be teaching me perseverance. He wants me to hang in there and, and to persevere in my faith. Uh, not to faint uh, in my prayers, but to continue to pray. But we need to be specific. Turn to Acts chapter 4, and we'll, we'll close with this. We'll close with this, and we'll return right here next week. Uh, again, we're talking about our primary focus is persecution, is hostility. This is stunning when you see it. And this is just one example. You see this true throughout the Scriptures among the men and women of God. And I, I want to show you something. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, the disciples are apprehended by the authorities. And if you know, they give them a hard time. They, they try to threaten them, intimidate them. And they say, you got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Or you're in big, big trouble. And they basically looked at him and said, nah, that's one thing we can't do. Again, one of the things we'll look at more as we go through this series is that there's a place for civil disobedience in the life of a believer. There comes a point where some earthly authority will try to command you to do something that is contrary to what God has said in His Word. And at that point, I do it lovingly. I do it kindly, as Daniel did. We saw that in a couple occasions in his life. I have to stand firm in my faith and just say, I can't obey. I have to obey God. And I suffer those consequences, regardless of what they, they might be. So that's the situation here. And, uh, and this is what I want you to see. Look at verse 23. Okay, so they've, they've had this encounter They've received these threats and these intimidations. They've been told, you can't speak in Jesus' name anymore. You can't teach about Jesus anymore. Verse 23, and when they had been released, they went to their own companions, other believers, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord, there's unity, and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, God simply spoke and what you see came into being. That's how powerful our God is. So this goes back to Nehemiah chapter 1. They're focusing initially what? On God. Who He is, that He's a great, awesome God, knowing that they can trust Him. Verse 25, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David thy servant, did say... Why did the Gentiles rage, 
And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Again, persecution, hostility is inevitable. For truly in this city, right where we are, were gathered together against, they were gathered together against thy holy servant, Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and don't miss this. Notice what they pray for. And grant that thy bondservants may speak of thy word with all confidence. While thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and the signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Don't miss this. And this isn't just a single example. I could give you many, especially in the New Testament, that when people, God's people suffered persecution, hostility, they didn't beg for deliverance. They didn't beg to be released. They asked for boldness. Boldness to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live the gospel, to share the gospel, and to use the backdrop of their suffering as an opportunity to do that. You see, you know, we've referred to Paul often. We see that in Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He's in prison. How does he pray? This is how he prays. Hey, God, I, I don't want to be put to shame in anything. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means by that. He says, this is my hope, this, that, that Christ will be magnified in and through my life. Whether I die or whether I live, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, he asked for what? Boldness. To stay true to Christ in that difficult circumstance. And so, one of the great lessons we need to see is that when hostility, opposition comes, don't become intimidated. Don't become timid about speaking, about taking a stand. God wants to use this to teach you to stand alone for Him. Amen? Regardless of the consequences. Father, uh, give us the grace to live this truth out. Uh, Father, we, we all acknowledge readily. I acknowledge myself. Uh, I am a coward at heart. We all are. And uh, Lord, what we're talking about is a supernatural life that only can be uh, empowered through the... Uh, ministry and person of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. But at the same time, we know you desire our cooperation as we surrender to you, as we look to you, as we learn these lessons from Nehemiah about how to pray, uh, how to turn from our circumstances to focus on our great, awesome God, how to repent of sin, uh, how to focus on holiness, on being specific in our prayers. Uh, so, Lord, in this day and age where there is so, so many reasons to be fearful, give us boldness. Give us boldness as believers uh, to advance the gospel of Christ and to speak of that one who is most lovely to us, Jesus, and of his death, burial, and resurrection and the forgiveness that he offers to all who come to him through faith. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. As the invitation is extended, if... Uh, I'll be here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. I trust everyone will be responding there in your pew to the truth that you've heard, however God has spoken uh, to you, that you'll respond uh, to God. Uh, 
if you've been visiting the church and uh, God is leading you to unite with the church, uh, we would invite you at this time to make your way down the aisle uh, to let me know of that intent. And that just gives me the opportunity to, to introduce you to the church family so that we can get to know you, begin to love on you. And, uh, and then we'll take you through that full process to, uh, to church membership. And, uh, and then if you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, I was thinking during the song service earlier, I've walked with God now for over 47 years. I've been unfaithful many, many times. I've never known God wants to be unfaithful to me. He's always been faithful. And that's what's being offered to you as an unbeliever. Not only forgiveness from the penalty of sin, not only the power to uh, break sin, its hold on you to follow Christ, but a friend, as we sang earlier, that will always be there for you. You'll never have to go through life alone. Because God will be there for you no matter what you go through. To guide you, to direct you, yes, when necessary, to correct you. And yes, when necessary, to carry you when you can't do it on your own. Amen? And so uh, our church family, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, we would appeal to you. Put your trust, put your faith in Jesus, Lord and Savior, and bow the knee to Him and trust Him. So please stand as the invitation is extended. And you just be responsive in your own heart to what God has said to you today.